Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover Acts 13, verses 13 through 33. We're going to continue the story of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark's first missionary journey as they set out from Antioch of Syria. In our last audio, the first 12 verses of this chapter 13, we see the apostolic band start off in Salamis on the east coast of Cyprus, preached in a synagogue there. Then they went all the way across the island of Cyprus to the west coast at Paphos, where they converted Sergius Paulus and rebuked Elamus, Simon Barjonas, the false Jewish magician. Now they're going to take off from Paphos and sail to a place called Perga. That's where we'll start off in Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions, his companions being Barnabas and John Mark, put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. So they sailed north, a little bit north and west, came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now Perga is famous not because they started a church there, because they didn't. We'll see why in a minute, probably. But it's famous because this is where John Mark abandoned the first missionary journey. He just had gotten started, hardly even gotten started, and Paul and Barnabas lost their helper. And as we'll see later, Paul wasn't very happy about it. Now, Pamphylia is a coastal province of Asia Minor. If you start going from west to east along the southern coast of Asia Minor, of Asia, of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, you'll see the province of Lycia. That's a, a piece of land that juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. And then there's an indentation right to the east of that, which is a bay. And right at the head of that bay is a seaport called Italia, famous seaport, well-known seaport, and right about five miles inland and 12 miles to the east is Perga. So they landed at Italia, and then they ended up at Perga, right there at the head of that bay. If you keep going to the east, you'll end up, you'll see another jutting out peninsula, and then if you go past that peninsula, there's another little bay there, and at the head of that bay is Tarsus in Cilicia, which is, of course, Paul's home city. So basically, if you look at Pamphylia, we're basically looking at a little bit to the west of Asia Minor, of Asia, Anatolia, and a little bit to the west, and but basically in the center. And from here, Paul is going to leave Pergamon, is going to go to Pisidian Antioch, not Syrian Antioch, but Pisidia, which is a province right in the middle of the region called Galatia, and that's almost dead center in, in the midst of the Anatolian landmass. If you look at the map of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, you will see it's divided into three basic regions. On the far west is Asia, in the center is Galatia, and in the east is Cappadocia. And so Pisidian Antioch, where the disciples are going to end up, the apostles are going to end up, is in the middle of Galatia, which is in the middle of that province. It's real easy to find maps of the journeys on the Internet. I would suggest that you do that so you can get a good feel for where the apostles went. All right, so they're at, they're at Perga. And Perga, as I said, was the pro, is capital of Pamphylia, which is a, an area right north of Lycia, which is, at the, is the southwestern promontory, or peninsula, if you will, or, or jut, jutting piece of land that juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. So Pamphylia was... 80 miles long and 20 miles wide at its widest point. Now, Paul did not stay there in Pamphylia at Perga. Why not? Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, who's quoting another old scholar named Hosen, to describe why Paul didn't stay there 
at Perga. Quote, it was a long journey. This is up to Pisidian Antioch in the center of the continent there. It was a long in the center of the of Anatolia. It was a long journey, and as it lay almost entirely through rugged mountain passes, while rivers burst out at the base of huge cliffs or dashed down wildly through narrow ravines, it must have been a perilous one. The whole region was, and to this day is, infested by robbers, as ancient history and modern travels abundant travelers abundantly attest. And there can be but little doubt that to this very journey Paul many years after alludes when he speaks amidst his journeyings often of his perils of river and his perils of robbers in Second Corinthians eleven twenty six. If this journey were taken in May and earlier than that the passes would have been blocked up with snow, it would account for their not staying at Perga, whose hot streets are then deserted, men, women and children, flocks, herds, camels and asses all ascending at the beginning of the hot season from the plains to the cool basin-like hollows on the mountains, moving in the same direction with our missionaries. So, in other words, Paul probably landed there after the snowfall, which the snow would have blocked the passes up to Pisidian Antioch. Therefore, it was hot, and all the people had left, so there's no point in starting a church there. Now, let's talk about John Mark. Why did he leave? Well, people have speculated why. NIV Study Bible speculates he was homesick for Jerusalem. John Gill speculates he was homesick for his mother. Adam Clark speculates... He was homesick for Peter. <laughs> for whatever reason, he didn't stick it out. NIV Study Bible speculates that Paul had gotten sick. And when he got sick, he changed his plans to go to Galatia. I don't know why. And John Mark didn't like that. I, I don't understand that speculation. That's a, that's a good one. Or the NIV Study Bible speculates that at this time, Barnabas is no longer really the leader of the missionary journey. It's become apparent that Paul is and John Mark is jealous of that because Barnabas is Paul's, John Mark's cousin. And so he's jealous of Paul's leadership. That's another speculation. Jameson Fawcett, that's the NIV study Bible speculation. Jameson Fawcett and Brown speculate that Mark had become frightened by the prospect of danger before them. Now, Mark had left before any danger had actually occurred, but he knew what was facing them. I mean, they were on a dangerous journey preaching the gospel. People got up, he knew what was going to happen. And so maybe he just chickened out. But I don't know, but whatever reason it was, Paul wasn't happy about it. In Acts 15, verses 37 through 39, we read this. Barnabas wanted to take John. This is the beginning of the second journey. Barnabas wanted to take John, call Mark along with him also, just like with the first journey. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along with, take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So the first journey got off to a rocky start. John Mark got off to a rocky start of his gospel career. He ended up pretty good. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, and now we're still reading him 2,000 years later. So it shows that you can get straight after screwing up at the beginning. And also we'll notice that in the in the salutations and the signatures of letters, the closings of letters, we see Barnabas and I think John Mark too both mentioned in some of Paul's letters, so they got reconciled later on. But for right now, they're split up. We go to Acts 13, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and that's basically north and back east a little bit, right in the center of the Anatolian landmass there. 
They arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now you notice they went to the synagogue first. That was his regular practice, Paul's practice, to begin preaching in a synagogue if the Jews would allow it, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Why did he do that? Well, this was noted. This was rooted in God's redemptive plan. Here's some scriptures that show this. Acts 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. He's talking to Jews. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Note that Paul and Barnabas say it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to Jews first. It was necessary. It was God's plan. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. But it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans 2, 9 and 10, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. Now, that's not salvation to the Jew first, but it's judgment to the Jew first and to the Greek. But Paul always, you know, he's got that phrase in his rhetoric, the Jew first and then the Greek. Verse 10 in Romans 2, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he's carrying out the way he thinks. Now this does not mean he was neglecting his Gentile mission by going to the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch first, because there were Gentile God-fearers in the, in the synagogue audience. God-fearers were proselytes, either of the gate, proselytes of the gate or proselytes of the righteousness. The scholars disagree but some kind of proselytes would be in the synagogue, and they're going to have contact with Gentiles. So it's not completely shutting out the Gentiles. Going to a synagogue first was a convenient place for Paul and his company to evangelize. They had a building. They had regularly scheduled meetings. They had an audience who knew the Old Testament scriptures to which Paul could appeal to, or Barnabas. And it was customary that when you were a traveling rabbi, the synagogue officials would ask you to teach. So you had an automatic invitation to teach. So it's not surprising that the early apostles went to synagogues first. So here they are in, in Pisidian Antioch. Now, by the way, this is not the Antioch in Syria. That's the Syrian Antioch is where they started out from, right there on the northwest corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And Pisidian Antioch is where they are now. There are Antiochs everywhere, named after probably Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes III, the famous Seleucid emperor. We move now to Acts chapter 13, verse 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, that's Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Again, you have that standing invitation when a traveling rabbi comes through. Now, it says after the reading of the law and the prophets, this was standard in a synagogue meeting. After sections from the Old Testament were read, exposition and exhortation was done later. And this was done every Sabbath day. These synagogue officials were the ones that were responsible for calling readers and preachers to the front. They had people who would read the scripture too, and then people who would expound on it. These officials would arrange the service, maintain order, and so forth. Now, how did the synagogue officials know that Paul and Barnabas wanted to teach? Well, they might have talked to him beforehand. Oh, hey, where are you from? I hadn't seen you before. Well, we're out traveling from Antioch in Syria, and uh, we're traveling rabbis, traveling teachers. And then the synagogue official says, good, we'll let you teach today. Not a problem. So Acts 13, I suppose they're going to be pretty shocked at what kind of teaching they're going to hear, though. Acts 13, verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He stood up and motioned. That means he's trying to get their attention because and, and probably uh, he was invited to speak and people didn't know who he was, so he stood up so everybody could see him. He's going to sit down to teach 
later on because that's the standard position for teachers in synagogues. They sat to teach. And he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, that's referring to the proselytes, the God-fearers. You who fear God, the God-fearers, the proselytes, either of the gate or of righteousness. And so he addresses his Jewish audience. John Gill more precisely talks about why Paul stood up. He could have stood up to be heard. He could have stood up out of respect to the rulers and the people. He could have stood up to show that he accepted the invitation to speak. But for whatever reason, he stood and then he sat down. Then we go to Acts 13, verses 17 through 18. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great. This is Paul starting his little teaching here. Made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted alarm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, Paul is going to give a brief history of Israel culminating in the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to show that the New Testament is directly tied to the Old Testament. The New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And this is very necessary because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Now, God of Israel chose our fathers. That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their seed that came after them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 patriarchs. He made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. How? Well, great honor and dignity uh, was given to Joseph as he was advanced in Egypt. Also, the Hebrew population greatly increased in size, so when it made the people great, even though they were slaves, they were increasing in population numbers. In the stay of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, that's just a metaphor that means strength and power. He led them out from it, from Egypt. For a period of about 40 years, about a year to Kadesh Barnea, 38 years after Kadesh Barnea, where they rejected the spies' report of the giants in the land. They wandered for 38 years, and then they came back to Kadesh Barnea, and then they took a part of a year getting back into the, into, uh, the promised land across the Jordan River. So it was about 40 years, and all those 40 years, God put up with them. Now, that's an interesting phrase. He's trying to show that the Jews were rebellious from the get-go, just like they were rebellious when they crucified Jesus. Now, some manuscripts, as the NIV margin points out, say, add and cared for them. In other words, God put up with them in the wilderness and cared for them. So, and that kind of, if if that if those manuscripts are, are true, then that illustrates that even though God is irritated as heck with his chosen people, they're still his chosen people, and he still manages to establish them after chastising them with many stripes. He still establishes them at the end, which is a good application for Christians today. There's a lot of Christians that are just doggone rebellious. God has chosen them. They're his children, but they have to be chastised severely before they enter into their rest. It's unfortunate. There's two ways you can learn. You can pray, read your scripture, and obey. Or you can go out and do things your way and have your head beat down as as if with a two-by-four as God tries to get you to listen to him. Your choice. Verse thir- Acts 13, verse 19. When he, that's referring to God, when he, God, had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance. That's, of course, Joshua. All of which talk about 450 years. That means the, the uh, Exodus as well as the, the time of Joshua. Now, I'm not even going to talk about that 450 years. That's one of those Bible difficulty places that takes a Ph.D. in New Testament studies to try to reconcile it. I downloaded three PDF files and got bogged down in it, so we're going to let that one go. I just pointed out to you. The problem is because is 1 Kings 6.1 says this, Now, it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, 
that he began to build the house of the Lord. So there you got 480 years. So you've got a problem with the beginning and the end dates, and how do you reconcile that? And there's also textual problems involved. Do you use the the old the uh, majority text? Or do you use the old older text? It's over my head. So we'll just let that go. Paul mentions 450 years, and that God had destroyed seven nations in the land land of Canaan during this time. These are the Canaanites, one, two, the Hittites, three, the Amorites, four, the Perizzites, five, the Hivites, six, the Jebusites, and seven, the Girgashites. The rabbi rabbi summarized all that just by calling them the seven nations. And you really don't need to learn these ites except for Canaanites. That's a general term for all of them, and, and that's pretty important. And Hittites, that was a famous ancient empire that ruled all over Turkey, died out. I think the Neo-Hittites died out right before the Assyrians took over in the 8th, 9th century BC or so. But they were around, they were around just about the time that the, that Moses took the children of Israel into the promised land. So they're important. The Amorites are important too. I forgot how, right off the top of my head. Perizzites, Hivites, you don't need to worry about. Gigashites, you don't need to worry about. The Jebusites are the tribe that took that were controlling Jerusalem before it was conquered by the Israelites. So, by David. So, this is just a brief history of Jewish history here. As Paul continues, we go to verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. In other words, after the seven nations were cleared out of the land, or partially cleared out of the land under Joshua, Joshua dies, the land is ruled by judges, and Samuel was the last one. He's called a prophet here. He was, he was the last judge, but he's also called a prophet. Verse 21, then they asked for a king. They got tired of being ruled by judges. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. This is the famous Saul, the first king of Israel. Paul says they asked for a king. That was they asked for Samuel for a king in 1 Samuel 8, 5. And they said to him, said to Samuel, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. They got to have a king. Got to have taxes and warfare. You know, can't do without a king. Now it says that Solomon ruled, that Saul, excuse me, ruled Israel for 40 years. Now this is an interesting thing too. I tell you, when you get to these chronological problems, they can really be tough. 1 Samuel 13, 1 says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel, not 40, but 42. Is it round off area or era? Is it referring to when Saul's reign actually was said to start? And, and that's a huge problem. I've seen on the internet discussions of how long, I did a search, how long was Saul's rules? Well, I came up with 40 years, 42 years, 20 years, and 2 years. So anyway, that's something that needs to be examined if you're interested in that kind of thing. We go to Acts 13, verse 22. After removing him, after God removed Saul, he, God, raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man loyal to me and who will carry out my will. How did God remove David? Well, he either removed him de facto, if not de jure, when Saul started rebelling against God. First Samuel 15:23, Samuel says this, For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That's when Saul didn't kill those, didn't sacrifice these, these captured animals like he should have. And so Samuel says, you're rejected. But that means rejected by God, but, not, but he was still the legal ruler of Israel. Or it could be, so they, that, that, that could be one place, that could be what Paul means here when he says that God removed Saul. But it could mean God removed Saul by killing him, as John Gill says, and I think that's what happens after that famous battle, if you recall, 
where he's killed up on Mount Gibeah, up at right south east, southwest of the Sea of Galilee, Bethshan. So Saul is gone. Now Paul continues with his story. And then it says that he, God, raised up David and testified about him. In other words, God said something about David. Quote, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man loyal to me. You will carry out all my will. Well, where is that quoting from? Well, let's see. It's not specifically recorded anywhere in the Old Testament, John Gill says, but we can look at scriptures like this. Psalm 89:20. I have found David my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. I have found David my servant. Paul quotes God as saying this about David. I have found David the son of Jesse. Well, that sounds pretty close. That's probably the scripture that Paul's referring to. How about 1 Samuel 13, 14? But now your kingdom shall not endure. Talking about Saul, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people. Sought out a man after his own heart? Well, that matches up pretty good with Acts 13:22, where Paul says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man loyal to me who will carry out my will. That's a man after my own heart. So that's probably the allusions that Paul is making to in the Old Testament. Notice that David is said to be one who carries out all my will, it says. Well, but wait a minute. David committed adultery and murder. He's somebody who carries out all his will. And I've always had trouble with that when we talk of David. The answer is, is because what God is worried about here is those who carry out the the will of the covenant, the covenant with with God and Israel, who shun idolatry. And that's, David did do that. He didn't put up with idolatry, and he established the Old Testament system that was prophesied through Moses, he did that. And his private life was pretty lousy. Let me read you a quote from Adam Clark that backs me up on that. Quote, when it is said that David was a man after God's own heart, it should be understood not of his private, but of his public character. He was a man after God's own heart because he ruled the people according to the divine will. He did not allow of idolatry. He did not set up for absolute power. He was guided in the government of the nation by the law of Moses as the standing rule of government and by the prophet or the divine oracle whereby God gave directions upon particular emergencies. So, we now turn to Acts 13, verse 23. Paul continues with his history lesson in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. From the descendants of this man, that's David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Again, he quotes, he goes to the Old Testament. He quotes about the Messianic promises about Jesus, of which there are many, and they're famous. Let me read you three of them. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. Jesse, yeah, Jesse was David's father. The stem of Jesse, of course, is referring to David, and then a shoot will spring out from that stem. So Jesus will spring out from David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that, of course, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's referring to Jesus. Second Samuel 7, 12. When, you're Dave, when yours, referring to David's, when, you're, when David's days are complete, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. That, of course, is referring to Jesus. That's Nathan's famous prophecy in 2 Samuel 7:12. Then we see Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And that, of course, and that, of course is referring to Jesus. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And of course, Judah and Israel is fulfilled in the church. We will be saved and we will be safe. 
and we will dwell securely. Anyway, so this is what Paul is referring to when he says, according to promise, these promises, Old Testament promises I just read, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Verses 24 through 25 in Acts 13. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. This is Paul continuing with his history of Israel. He's up to John the Baptist now. John preaches a baptism of repentance. That's not Christian baptism, of course, but he basically said you repent from your sins, be baptized to prepare yourself for when you can get forgiven of your sins by Jesus. Verse 25 in Acts 13, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he that John, John the Baptist is answering the Pharisees' questions. And they say, who are you? The priests and the Levites came up from Jerusalem to the wilderness, and they said, who are you, John? And John kept saying, well, who do you suppose I am? I am not he. What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And of course, that's referring to Jesus. And now Paul is getting ready to present to them the fulfillment of all Old Testament history, Jesus Christ. Acts 13, 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Those of you who fear God is referring to the God-fears, proselytes of the gate or proselytes of righteousness. Brethren, Paul is not speaking to Christian brethren. He's speaking to Jewish brethren because he's in a Jewish synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. And he says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, in other words, Jews. By the way, proselytes of the gate only had to keep the seven laws of Noah, I think it was called. No stealing, no rape, no murder, no blasphemy. You have to establish the law. Is six of them. I can't remember the seventh. It's kind of a strange law. First four kind of obvious. And you could be, and they were usually resident aliens who would come in to do business in Israel. Proselytes of righteousness circumcised and had to keep all of the Mosaic law. They couldn't eat shrimp or pork and all that. And they were just the same as a Jew. God, and, and these two proselytes of the gate and proselytes of righteousness were called God-fearers. And the scholars dispute over whether God-fearers should be applied to one or both of those categories. But at any rate, that's who Paul's talking to. So there were proselytes there in the synagogue. Verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling the fulfilled these by condemning him. Fulfill the prophecies that are read every Sabbath in your synagogue. And they're so stupid that they actually fulfill those prophecies by condemning Jesus. Notice it says those who live in Jerusalem did this, as well as the rulers. It wasn't just the Jewish rulers. There was a big mob out there saying, crucify him. It wasn't just the rulers. It was the, the hoi polloi, the Jewish hoi polloi, if you will. Now, how did they fulfill the scripture by condemning Jesus? Well, here's a famous messianic psalm, Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. That was read in the Sabbath every day in the synagogues. And Jesus on the cross who said, quoted that verse and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now notice Paul says the Jewish rulers did not recognize Jesus. They recognized neither him nor the prophets. Well, that was real nice. That was a gentle way to put it, as Adam Clark points out. These are the same rulers who persecuted and murdered Jesus. And Paul just says, well, they just didn't recognize the truth. I wonder if Paul was trying not to offend his audience. He's trying to, to be nice to them so they'll listen to him. Now we know that Paul was not afraid to call a spade a spade. I mean, he just called Simon Bar-Jesus, Bar Elymas, the fake prophet in Paphos on, on Cyprus, called him the son of the devil. So, I mean, you know, you know, he was like Jesus. He didn't mind letting people hold it, but there's no point in causing offense when you don't have to, I guess. So here he is. He's, he's 
kind of euphemizes what the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem did because he knew that the Jews in Antioch in Pisidian Antioch, Antioch are going to be sympathetic with these Jewish leaders because after all, they're Jews in a synagogue. But of course, he's hoping, as Jameson, Foss, and Brown say, he's hoping that the Jews at a distance there in Pisidian Antioch would not approve of what the Jews in Jerusalem did. We go to verse 28 of Acts 13, and though they, Paul continues with his history lesson here, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, as they mean the, the Jewish leaders, they asked Pilate that he be executed, and notice that Paul appeals to Jesus' innocence. If you read the gospel accounts, there's no question that Jesus was innocent. It was a kangaroo court. The high priest and his Sanhedrin minions suborned false witnesses so they could try to get testimony against Jesus. They couldn't get the false witnesses to agree to themselves. They contradicted each other. Pilate saw that the whole thing was a kangaroo court, and Pilate over and over again tried to say, look, let's let's let him go. We don't need to com- condemn an innocent man here. I got a guy that's obviously not in- innocent, Barabbas. I'll give you, I'll give you to him. I'll give, I'll, let's, let's crucify him and let Jesus go. No, no, give us Barabbas. So, so anyway, the Jews couldn't were were had a Soviet-style proceeding, a kangaroo court, a star chamber, an inquisition. There was no grounds for putting Jesus to death, but they did so. And then, of course, they asked Pilate that it be executed because the Jews didn't have proper, they didn't have legal authority to execute criminals, at least on political charges. That issue, by the way, is a little bit controverted about exactly what jurisdiction the Jews had. It comes up in Acts 7 when the Sanhedrin killed Stephen. Some people say that was really a mob. They got carried away. They did things out of proper judicial order. But the issue has caused some, some discussion, which you can find on the Internet. But basically the rule was the Jews could not did not have authority for capital punishment, so they had to get the Romans to do it. And so now you got two powerful entities that killed Jesus, the Roman Empire and the Jewish rabbinic leaders, the two powers that are described in the book of Revelation, the sea beast being Rome and the land beast being Israel. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Now the Jewish leaders, some killed him and some took him off the cross. That's kind of collapsed a little bit. The they that took him down from the cross were actually believers in Jesus. That would be Nicodemus, who was on the Sanhedrin, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was also on the Sanhedrin. They are the ones that took Jesus from the cross. They laid him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The, the verse can be translated, he was taken down from the cross, or they, people in general, people took him down from the cross, not trying to say that it was the particular Jewish leaders that executed him and put him to death, turned him over to the Romans. They obviously didn't lay him in a tomb. That's just history, and that's that's just the way it was. Now we see that Paul says that when they, the Jewish leaders, had carried out all that was written concerning him, there's famous scriptures in the Old Testament written predicting Jesus' crucifixion. I'm going to read you four of them. Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Well, that's obvious. That's referring to Jesus, Jesus' crucifixion. Isaiah 52:14. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. Obviously, the crucifixion. 
Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are all, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, and we all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Perfect description, perfect prophetic description of the crucifixion. Next chapter, or next, uh, skip a verse, we go to Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. They sent him to death amongst the wicked. He was killed between two thieves. And with a rich man at his death, he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. So when Paul says in Acts 13.29 to the Jews at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, he is tying Jesus' crucifixion right back to Old Testament prophecy. Again, he's speaking to Jews. Fulfillment of prophecy is a great evangelistic technique when you're speaking to Jews who believe in the Old Testament. We go to Acts 13, verses 30 through 31. But God raised him from the dead, and here we have the resurrection, which is the central point of most gospel evangelistic messages that I can see in the book of Acts. We remember Peter and John right there at the beginning Shortly after Pentecost, when they're preaching in Jerusalem in the temple complex, they always mention God raised him from the dead, raised him from the dead. Resurrection is always there. And I think that, to me, it seems to me that most witnessing today is talking about how you're a sinner and you need to be delivered from your sins, which, of course, is absolutely true. But we don't mention the resurrection. I haven't, at least. And I, I listen to other people's evangelistic techniques, and they don't seem to mention the resurrection so much. They did back in the, in the early days. But God raised him from the dead, Paul continues, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, that would be the twelve apostles. He appeared to them twice, the two Sunday nights after the resurrection, and he mentions that this witnessing, this appearance to these people was done for many days, for many days. That would be the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, as the NIV Study Bible and John Gill say. I'll read Acts 1-3 here. To these also, these apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then Paul says these ones are now his witnesses to the people. Christianity is a religion based upon credible testimony and witnessing and witnesses. We see that especially all through the book of John and especially here in the book of Acts. I've tried to emphasize that every time we cross something like that in, in Acts. Adam Clark makes the point that many of the witnesses of the resurrection will still be alive. We're talking about 47, 46, 47, 48 is the date of the first missionary journey somewhere around there. And that's just, what, 16, 17, 18 years after Jesus was executed and raised resurrected so people who saw jesus after the resurrection a lot of them would still be alive remember in one place in corinthians it says that paul appeared to 500 that was somewhere in galilee on a mountain 500 people mary magdalene saw him mary the, the other mary the mary of james and joseph saw him resurrected salome the wife of zebedee the mother of james and john saw him if you go through the resurrection appearances in addition to these apostles of christ and some of them saw him more than once simon peter got a special Appearance from Jesus and Mary Magdalene got a special appearance from Jesus in addition to other appearances in a group. So, 
We're now at the good news of the resurrection, Acts 13, verses 32 through 33, and we'll shut this one down. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise, Paul continues. The good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. What's the promise that was made to our ancestors? That's the famous promise. That's the covenant promise to Abraham of land, offspring, and blessings. L-O-B, lob. Land, offspring, and blessings. Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Any study of the Old Testament, you will run across those covenant promises big time. I'll just read you one example. Genesis 22:18, And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you've obeyed my command. That's the offspring promise. Paul says, we're proclaiming to you the good news of this promise because Jesus fulfills the promise of Abraham. The good news, that's gospel. Old English is gospel. We call it now, as in new, modern English now, the gospel. Paul says, he quotes, that this fulfillment of Abraham's promise, well, notice that it says God has fulfilled this for us, their children, the, the fathers, the patriarchs' children, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's children, descendants. God has fulfilled this promise by raising up Jesus. So you see, Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic promises. The New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, how was this fulfillment done? Paul says it is done as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I've become your father. So Paul quotes the second psalm directly. That's Psalm 2, verse 7, which says this, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I've become your father. Now the question is, is when did God the Father become God the Son's father? Now, it, if we're talking about there's a point in time where the son was created, well, now you're a heretic. You're an Aryan heretic, Jehovah's Witness. That's obviously not what he meant. There's two options could mean the resurrection of Jesus, and I believe that's it. The other option, which I'll talk about first, is the incarnation of Jesus. You are my son. Today, when I incarnated you in the Virgin Mary's womb, I have become your father. In other words, I have become the father of your human nature, even though your divine nature was co-eternal with me. That's Adam Clark's view. I don't hold that view. I think he's talking about the today when God became the father of Jesus was at the resurrection. Let's read Romans 1, 4 to back that up. And by the way, the NIV Study Bible holds to that view. Adam Clark mentions the view. Romans 1, 4. And who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead? Jesus has been declared to be the powerful Son of God. How? By the resurrection from the dead. So, when the second Psalm, verse 7 says, You are my son, today I have become your father. And Romans says you have been declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. The declaration of the Son of God, that he's the Son of God, happened at the resurrection according to Romans 1.4. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Romans 1.4, quote, regards the resurrection of Christ merely as the manifestation of a prior sonship. In other words, of course, Jesus was God's father. God was Jesus' father from eternity. That's standard Trinitarian Orthodox doctrine, but... When we see the manifestation of his fatherhood and Jesus' sonship, that was at the resurrection. And that's his, And the reason I think it's the resurrection because that's the context here. Paul says in verse 38, God has fulfilled Abraham's promise for us, his children, Christians. He has fulfilled this promise by raising up Jesus by the resurrection. And then he goes on to quote the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. So just looking at the context, he's saying that the way the father became the father of the son was by raising up Jesus. That's what he's referring to. And we can look at the next verse, which we won't cover in this audio. He's still talking about the resurrection. Verse 34, since he, God, raised him, the son, from the dead, 
never to return to the case. So he's talking about the resurrection. So, in my opinion, so so we now are right in the height of his gospel message. I'm gonna have to stop here, and we'll take up because it's a long message, and we'll finish up Acts 13 next audio as we look at as we continue with Paul's Pisidian Antioch ministry, Paul and Barnabas's ministry in Antioch of Pisidia. I hope you listened to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>